as uh, Brad was praying, I was reminded of uh, a principle that I, I felt like when I was thinking about it, I felt like the Holy Spirit was inviting me to share this. So, well, um, we so often approach church like consumers because we're taught to be consumers from the day that we're born where um, church is about feeding us, you know what I mean? And is it, do I like the music? Do I like the preaching? Do I like the, the programs that are offered? And um, every, th that's clearly a twisting of how things are meant to be, right? We're not meant to be consumers of, of church. We don't, like, the, the phrase that bothers me probably above all other phrases is church shopping. Like, we don't shop the bride of Christ, right? <laughs> like, we don't. We don't shop the bride of Christ. Um, so as I was thinking through this, I was thinking about the principle that, that just like everything else, our, our corporate experience when we come together is really about not consuming or looking for a specific experience, a thing that tickles our ears or sounds good or meets our needs and, and how we perceive them to be, but rather what church is is how we consume Christ. That is the one thing we are meant to consume. This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat it. We're to consume Christ. And to the extent that we together consume Christ, I mean, like in the way that he meant it to be, where we're, we're meditating on him, we're, we're receiving from him, we're drinking of him, we're satisfied in him and him alone, to that extent we'll be fed. To, to that extent, we'll be satisfied. To that extent, we'll be made whole and we'll experience his presence. So I just want to encourage you this morning that whether or not you like the music or whether or not my teaching is all that good, that, that actually doesn't really matter that much. What matters is how we together and you individually, it's the both, how we pursue Christ's presence together. Does that make sense? So let's, let's, uh, let's just quiet our hearts for a moment and just refocus on the presence of the body of Christ broken for us, his blood shed for us, and let's consume him. Father, we choose for this to be sacred space because we choose for this space to be about you. And anything that's about you is sacred. Would we invite your holiness, your presence, your goodness, all the things of this earth that promise so much that are here today and gone tomorrow. Father, help us set those aside and focus on you and on your body. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We thank you for your sacrifice, your love, your goodness. Now teach us your word. As we feast, I'm reminded of John 6 where you said the hard thing about unless you eat my body, you have no part in me which is, sounds cannibalistic. And so a bunch of disciples abandoned Jesus at that point. And he looks at the 12 and he says, are you two going to leave? And Peter says his famous phrase, where else would we go? Who else has the words of life? So Father, this morning, Jesus, this morning, even though you say really difficult things to us, like take up your cross and die. Father, even though you call us uh, to difficult situations and walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. Where else would we go? <laughs> Where else would we go? Who else can actually speak life to us? 
Only you. So we invite your words to be words of life to us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, this morning we are continuing our journey through Acts. And I titled uh, this morning's sermon, Magic and Miracles. Everybody say, Magic and Miracles. As I was setting in this week, uh, I think, is it America? I, I had the song, is it, I think it's America. You can do magic. You know that song? Anybody know that song? Yeah, I had that song in my head all week while I was, while I was thinking about this. This is a really interesting passage where Luke is going to um, put side by side several um, different stories that are tightly packed together where one has to do with miracles and the other has to do with magic. We have a world that longs for magic. We have culture that longs for magic. And now, I mean, I'm not talking about like, you know, Houdini magic tricks. I'm talking about magic in the sense of trying to short circuit life and get the cheat code so that things are easier. That's, that's the promise of magic, when you can short circuit the difficulties of life for the cheat code. Um, and, and, but then Luke compares what the world offers in magic with miracles. It's really interesting. So I want you to think about that as we read the passage. So I know this is an up-down morning, but I invite you to stand and let's read corporately the scriptures together. If, if you can't stand, that's fine. Stay seated. Um, but for those who are physically able to stand, I invite you to stand and let's read out of reverence for the word of God. Let's read this out loud together from Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. They continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sect. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists 
undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Father, thank you for your word. Enlighten our eyes and our minds. There's no way that we can understand the depths of what you have for us without your spirit inspiring. So we invite your spirit to inspire um, and to speak today. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, so we have a pretty interesting passage where there's some crazy miracles happening. People are apparently picking up stuff that had just touched Paul's skin, like a handkerchief, like a sweatband, so he's still making tents. So he's working, you know, in his shop, or he's preaching in the afternoon in this, uh, in this lecture hall. And when you, uh, I know this from experience, when you preach in a place without air conditioning in the middle of summer, you start to sweat. You get worked up, and, and so he's like wiping his sweat, there's, uh, throws the handkerchief on the ground or whatever. People are picking this up and taking it to sick people and laying it on them, and they're getting healed. That's weird. Come on, let's be honest. That's weird. That's crazy. And then we have these Jewish exorcists, seven sons of this one guy named Skeva, or Skeva, however you say his name, and they're going around, and they're trying to cast out demons, and, and they've apparently heard Paul preach, Perhaps they've even witnessed some of the miraculous things that are taking place. You remember uh, Simon the Magician earlier in Acts when he witnesses what Philip does? And he's like, I want to do that too. And so he tries to buy the Holy Spirit with money. This is a similar passage, similar idea. And so these, these seven sons, they see the miracles of Paul. And so they go, they go to this man and they say, we, we command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. So we don't actually know Jesus. We don't actually believe what Paul's preaching, but we've seen what he does. So in the name of Jesus, by, by uh, Paul's preaching, come out of this man, and then 
the demon jumps on them, strips them naked, beats them up, and kicks them out. Now, what's crazy, everyone hears this, and they began to fear the Lord and worship him because of this happening to the extent that all of these people who had been practicing the Wicca of their day, they bring all their magic books and they put them in a pile and they burn them. It was 50,000 silver pieces. Who here would like to have 50,000 silver pieces? It's a lot of money. And so they're willingly sacrificing. It's this really interesting passage where we see the difference between magic and miracles. And we're going to look at that this morning. So this, of course, is Paul's missionary journey. Just for context, he has traveled from Antioch through Asia Minor. This is his third trip in this area. He has planted multiple churches, first with Barnabas and then with Silas and Timothy. And now he's in Ephesus. And this is his second time in Ephesus, but this is the first time he's staying in Ephesus, the first time he's been there for an extended period of time. Now, um, if you uh, read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which is the last book in the New Testament, there's seven churches that Jesus writes a personal letter to. It would be pretty cool to receive a personal letter from Jesus to the church of Parker Ford. Wouldn't that be cool? It would actually be to the church of Pottstown, because they're all, they're all regions that he writes a letter to. So, but it would be really cool as a regional church in Pottstown to receive a, a direct personal letter from Jesus. Now, in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, that's exactly what we have. We have a personal letter from Jesus written to seven of the churches, all of which are in Asia Minor, where Paul did his three uh, missionary journeys. And Ephesus, which is included in Revelation uh, chapter 2, is the hub out of which these different churches were planted. Um, And so as Paul is doing his work in this passage, he's sending out disciples, one of whom is Erastus, another is Timothy, and some others that we don't know the names of. And they're going to these nearby towns, and they're planting churches too, which is really cool. And that's what we read about in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. So that's just a little bit of context for what's going on. All right, this comes from Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch is a a friend of Netzer and has been uh, really influential in a lot of our lives. He's based out of Philadelphia. He's an incredibly helpful teacher and uh, sort of philosopher, and he writes a number of books. And this is from his most recent book called The TechWise Family. And in The TechWise Family, he breaks down um, the difference between magic and miracles a little bit. And so I was reminded of that as I was studying. And so um, as as I'm going through this this morning, a lot of this uh, are ideas that I've uh, learned from uh, Mr. Crouch. So what magic does is it promises easy everywhere. Everybody say, easy everywhere. So our culture, what it promises if we buy the next thing, the newest car, the newest lawnmower, the newest whatever, it's promising to make our life easier, right? And, and as technology evolves and, and continues to grow, every new invention promises to make our life a little bit easier. At least that's the promise. What we're finding, though, is that the easier our lives get in some ways, the more complicated and messy our, our relationships get and things tend to break down. So it's a promise of easy everywhere. And in the ancient world, they didn't have modern technology like we do that promised that. So they had dark arts and, and things like that, which are still practiced today in some places. Um, but they had, they had this promise of magic, which would make life 
easy. So what magic does is it decreases personal skills and discipline. So is it, um, an example would be, is it more difficult to ride a horse or to drive an automatic car? I mean, if you're trying to get somewhere, which one is more, which one's easier? Barb, you, you work with horses a lot. <laughs> Dri yes, driving a car. Driving a car is, is easier than riding a horse. With a horse, you've got to build a relationship. You've got to feed it. You've got to take care of it. It's messy. It's a lot of work. Um, all, all sorts of stuff. So um, when we use magic, when we, when we seek to use things that make our life easier, we actually lose skills. I wouldn't have the first bit of knowledge as to how to take care of a horse. Neither do I really know how to take care of a car, um, but I know where to take it if I have a problem. Magic also, um, it increases personal ease and personal comfort, and we live in a culture that says this is the most important thing. This is what our culture says. Every show you watch, every movie you watch um, is telling you the most important thing is for you to be happy. So do whatever you can. Buy whatever you need to buy. Dress however you need to dress. Spend time with people that make you happy. This is the, the gospel message of our culture. Be happy. Life is about you. And magic promises that. You can be happy. Take this fruit, eat it, you'll be happy. Magic disembodies us from one another. I want you to say that out loud so you can chew on it. Say, disembodies us from one another. Go ahead. So life is all, I mean, life, biblical life, as God designed it, is all about face-to-face, person-to-person, hand-to-hand, touch, touching one another. This is what life is made to be. What magic does, what technology does, is it disembodies, this is Gnosticism, it disembodies us from one another so that we're no longer face-to-face, -face, we're no longer touching one another, we're no longer, you know, shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow, working in the flesh, embodied. Did Jesus come as a disembodied spirit? When God came to earth, did he come as a disembodied spirit? No. He came as a person that could be touched. Here, Thomas, feel. Go ahead and touch it. Feel it. Feel my hands. Jesus had a body. So what magic does is it's, ult it's ultimately anti-incarnation. And that's the theological word for God becoming a person, is the incarnation. God took on flesh, John 1. He pitched a tent. He tabernacled among us. That is the incarnation. Without the incarnation, there's no relationship with God. Without the incarnation, there's no relationship with God, which means there's no restored relationship with one another. All of ministry in some way, in some form, is meant to be incarnational. So the ministry that God has called you to is meant to be incarnational. It's meant to be embodied. It's meant to be person to person, flesh to flesh, voice to voice. Touching. Person to person. Miracles, however, they're not shortcuts. Even though I think we're tempted to view them that way. They're not magic. And, and I think in the church we've confused miracles and magic. 
I think when we pray for healing, we're often just praying for magic. We're not actually praying for miracles. Now, what a miracle is, <laughs> rather than giving us ease of life, miracles actually flow from a life of obedience, suffering, and sacrificial love. Now, for those of you who've been walking for a while with the Lord, is obedience easy? Is suffering easy? Is sacrificial love easy? There's nothing easy about any of this. There's nothing easy about true miracles. It flows from a life, in many ways, a life of pain. So when you're longing for miracles to happen, and I long for miracles to happen, we have to ask the question, are we willing to walk the long road of pain and suffering to see this happen. Rather than disembodying us, miracles, true miracles, miracles from the Spirit of God, they actually bring wholeness, and they bring embodiment, not disembodiment. So I would challenge you, if you're an overachiever, to go through the scriptures and find every miraculous thing that you can find in the scriptures and see whether it caused the people who were healed to become more, if the intent was to be more of a person or less of a person, to be more involved in life or to escape life. And the point of every single miracle was for each person who was healed or touched to become more of a person, to be more human, to be more alive, to be more available, to be present in the moment. Miracles also bring healing for the sake of incarnational ministry. God does not heal people so that they can be happy. When God heals people, he heals them so that they can heal others. If God has healed you, then you're not allowed to keep that healing to yourself. If God has healed you, then it has to flow. We are meant to be channels that flow with God's touch. Magic, what it does, the promise of magic is this, there's this good thing here. And if I just, in the ancient world, if I, if I just said this incantation, if I just, you know, prayed this prayer or, or did this spell, I could get from here to here without having to go the circuitous long route, right? And that's often what technology and magic of today promises the same thing. If, if I just go, you know, I, I don't have to work for this. So, like, a, a great example of this is um, as postmodernism has been heightened and uh, the uh, relativity of truth has uh, increased in, in perception, um, <laughs> we no longer trust experts who have worked for it. What do they know when you can Google it? There's a major problem with that. You have not spent 30 years sweating and bleeding for that information. And so even if you have it, you wouldn't know the first thing to do with it. I can Google all I want how to fix my car. <laughs> but I haven't, you know, gotten my hands dirty. I haven't had someone in the flesh teach me how to do it. And so that information, while it might, may or may not be helpful, it doesn't actually cause me to live a fuller life or to be more of an expert or to be an expert at all on this thing. So just because you have information that you Googled 
because it's available, because the technology does not make us experts. And this, this is a problem because we end up doing this with all sorts of things. Um, yeah, we, we no longer listen to voices of authority who have actually suffered and gone through years and years of training. Um, by, and so this plays out in our culture in all sorts of ways. But what magic does is it promises, without suffering, you can have the thing that you want. All right, so with those things in mind, let's look at the passage for this morning. I'm not going to do the first part. If you weren't here last week, I covered the first part of the passage uh, last week, and uh, you can go back and listen to that. Starting in verse 8, this is a Paul. He enters the synagogue, and for three months he speaks boldly. This is what he does whenever he goes to any city. He starts with the synagogue, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way, notice it capitalized, the way is just a nickname for early Christians. Speaking evil of the way, so this is in the synagogue, before the congregation, he withdrew, Paul withdraws from them, and took some disciples, he took those who had been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, he takes them with him, and he begins to reason daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And we don't know anything about this man, but apparently he owned a lecture hall in Ephesus. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan mobile city, so lots of people were coming in and out of it all the time, and this would have been at the center of the city, and lots of people would have stopped there every single day. And every single day, it says, this continued for two years. Paul, every day, is spending time preaching and teaching. He's also tent making at the same time, so he's living a full life. Uh, he's making tents and then taking a break probably in the afternoon and preaching for several hours and then going back to work uh, making tents in the evening. This continues for two years so that the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Remember that map I showed of the seven churches? Uh, uh, that is the region that they would have called in first century Asia. And so all of those churches are being birthed out of this time while Paul is preaching daily. All right. Verse 11, while this is taking place, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, even Luke says extraordinary, which means that these miracles didn't happen in other places. These miracles that are happening in Ephesus, this is unique to Ephesus. But this should remind us of another story. What story should this remind us of? When, when uh, Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits cast out of them. What story should that remind us of in the Gospels? Yeah, the woman who had been bleeding, what, 14 years? Something like that? The woman who had been bleeding for 14 years, she had spent, it says she spent all her money looking for healing. All of her money. She had given everything she had looking for healing, and she just reaches out and touches the hem uh, of Jesus' robe, and she's healed immediately. And so there's precedent for this that we see earlier in the Gospels. But the handkerchiefs or aprons, his sweatbands, which is kind of nasty, probably, uh, touched his skin and were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. Not only did their diseases leave them, but evil spirits are cast out. There are people who have evil spirits who touch these cloths and the evil spirits leave them at the touch of the cloth of the thing that had touched Paul's skin. Think about that. That's wild. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant... Now, there's a reason Paul, Luke puts this story next to each other, right? These are, Luke is, 
is not messing around. He's putting these together for a reason. Out of this miraculous healing, he's going to immediately tell this story. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, so evil spirits have been cast out by Paul's handkerchief. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They're using the name of Jesus for magic. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. They don't actually believe he's the Messiah. They have not suffered for his name. They have not been discipled by him. They have not taken up their cross and walked with him. They see someone else do it, and they want to take the shortcut. And so without any relationship with Jesus whatsoever, they begin using his name. It's a magic spell. This is, the ultimate, this is an ultimate example of using the Lord's name in vain. They use the name of Jesus to cast out a spirit, but they're even removed from that because they're not even clear who Jesus is. They've just heard this guy Paul talk about him. And so they, not only are they removed from Jesus, like not, not having known him, but they're another step removed because they don't have a relationship with Paul. They just say, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. So we here are trying to cast you out by this name through this person. Verse 14, seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. I know who he is. And we see that in the Gospels too, right? Where the evil spirits, they know who Jesus is. Paul, I recognize. I've heard of Paul. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them. Now, look at the imagery here. And you all are Bible scholars. What should this imagery immediately remind us of when it says, so that they fled out, were naked, and wounded? What story should immediately come to mind? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eden. Adam and Eve in Eden. Sorry, I'll get, it. I'll get it one of these times. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So they, <laughs> how do you build relationship with God? You talk to him. That's how you build relationship with God. You talk to him every single day. You listen to him every single day. You spend time with him. It's just like any other person. How do you get to know a person? You spend time with him. You can know all the, I've used this example before, but for me, it just makes so much sense. I love baseball. My favorite baseball player in the world is Yadier Molina. He's the catcher for the Cardinals, the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm from St. Louis. I love Yadier Molina. I know all kinds of things about him, but I don't know him, and he doesn't know me. And our relationship with God can be the exact same thing, where you can know all kinds of things about God and not know him. Because you actually have to spend time wherein you're listening and you're alone and you're hearing. And it is within that context that a relationship becomes more than just, I know facts about this person, to a relationship that's alive. The reason I say that is in the cool of the garden, God would come and speak with Adam and Eve and walk with them. This was the way that they would become like God. You become like God by spending time with God. If you want to be like God, spend time with him, and you'll become more like him. 
The more time you spend with God, the more time you're listening to him, the more time he's disciplining you and correcting you and refining you, the more you'll embody him and become like him, shaped by him. So Adam and Eve, they hear the promise of the snake. Would you like to be like God, knowing between good and evil and short-circuit this, where you don't have to do the hard work of walking with God every single day. You don't have to sit in his school classroom every single day. You don't have to spend time with him in that way. Every single, you can just eat this thing. Magic! Just immediately, immediately, just eat this thing, and immediately you will be like God. You will know between good and evil, and you shall not die. That's the promise of magic. See this in the same story. We don't actually know Jesus. We don't even know Paul. We don't have a relationship with Jesus. We haven't submitted to the teachings of the gospel or listened to Paul. But here's this fruit that promises us power, promises us easy life where we can have control and probably make a lot of money. Because if you can walk around and cast out demons at will by using a magic name, you can probably make a lot of money. Easy life, easy everywhere. Skip the hard part. And so they try it. And just like Adam and Eve, they short-circuit the system. They skip it all. They break relationship with God. They're stripped naked. Their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They're ashamed. They're kicked out of the garden, out of the house, and they're wounded. Death comes on them. These guys, short-circuiting the system, they eat the fruit. (laughs) Man, they realize now that that's wrong. Their eyes are open. (laughs) They're beaten. They're stripped naked. They're kicked out of the house, and they're wounded. This is what magic does to anyone who tries to use it. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So people hear this story, and they fear the name of the Lord. And fear is the beginning of both worship and wisdom. And the name of the Lord is extolled. It's lifted up. Verse 18, and many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So again, Luke takes the story of miracles and then he puts the story of magic with the the, uh, false uh, exorcists. And then he shows the burning, the repentance from the false magic. And then here, once again, he shows the the power of miracles. Verse 19, in a number of those who had practiced, they burn them, they give it up, and the word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail mightily. And after these events, and I included these verses in here just for context, so after this is happening, Paul sends out Timothy and Erastus. And then verse 23 is what we'll pick up next week where the huge disturbance concerning uh, the way with the riot in Ephesus. And it might be the darkest time of Paul's life, uh, the hardest time of his life. All right, so with with this scripture in mind, uh, again, magic promises easy everywhere. It decreases personal skills and discipline, um, whereas miracles flow from a life of obedience, suffering, and sacrificial love. When those handkerchiefs from Paul had been placed on those people, this is Paul's third missionary journey. He's been walking with Jesus for a long time, and he's suffered for a long time. And he's been beaten and imprisoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been lashed. He's been made fun of. He's been kicked out of cities. He's been put on the run. He's been lonely. He's been tired. He's been exhausted. And it's out of that that God births 
miracles. Who wants to sign up for that? We should count the cost. We should. In the TechWise family, um, Andy says this. He, he, um, and he talks about the difference between instruments and tools and devices. And we'll have devices stand in for magic here um, in our culture. But uh, what's interesting, an instrument or a tool, it extends human capacity for flourishing. So we are body, mind, spirit, soul. That is how God makes us. And any instrument or any tool, it, it, if it's used properly, it's used to extend the capacity for flourishing. So for instance, uh, Dan, who uh, helped lead worship this morning, he could stand up here and he could lead uh, music just a cappella. He could sing and he would do a terrific job of it. But he plays a guitar, an instrument. And the, the guitar, it actually extends his capacity to make a greater sound, a fuller sound. And so um, he actually has to play it. He didn't pick it up for the first time today. Dan, how long have you been playing guitar? 20 years. So if you would pick up a guitar and you've never played before and tried to do that, it would be terrible. We'd never have another Sunday morning. No one would come back. Dan has put in sweat. His fingers have probably bled as he was building calluses and hurt and ached. He's had lessons. He's paid money. He's sacrificed. He spent time practicing over and over and over again. And because he put this time, he didn't short-circuit the system, it extends human capacity. And all of us flourish in worship because our brother was willing to sacrifice like that. Amen? All right, that's what an instrument or a tool does. It extends human capacity for flourishing. It's an extension of the person. Dan actually had to play the guitar for it to work. You didn't just press play on it. He had to stand up here and actually do something. It took skill. It requires something. Um, it requires practice for mastery. And satisfaction increases over time. Dan, do you enjoy playing guitar today? Yes. So do I. I've been playing for about the same amount of time. And I enjoy playing guitar today more than I've ever enjoyed playing guitar before. Because when you start to use a tool or an instrument for the first time, satisfaction is actually really low because it sounds terrible. But the more time and more practice you spend on it, the higher the satisfaction. And so with a tool or an instrument, satisfaction increases over time. The more time, the more effort, the more practice you put into it. Devices are the exact opposite. They promise easy everywhere. And the more time you spend with it, the less satisfaction you get. So who here has watched a show on Netflix and the first episode you really enjoyed? Or a show on TV that you really enjoyed? You watched a show, you liked it. Oh my goodness, people. Yes, of course. Come on. You watched a show, you enjoyed it. Who here has binged on TV and found that after X amount of hours, they were not nearly as satisfied. <laughs> they were not happy. You're exhausted. You're tired. What a waste of time. I can't believe I did that. With devices, because they don't require any skill, they don't cause any flourishing, satisfaction starts high and then it plummets. Which, yeah, should tell us something. It removes skill from usage. How much skill did it take to turn on your TV and watch your show? How much skill did it take to use Instagram, Facebook? Not much, especially Twitter. Like, that does not take much skill. You do not have to be a literary major to write on Twitter. I have learned that, reading some tweets. Um, it, so it removes uh, skill from usage, and it actually diminishes our satisfaction. 
So the reason I wanted to bring this to mind today is because Luke is, is showing in an ancient context the difference between magic and, and uh, miracles. In our day and age, um, we don't see magic used often in quite the same way. I have had some Wiccan friends and who are very much involved in magic, so I understand that that's still a real thing that people practice, and I've been in tribes in the Philippines where they practice animism, and so that's very much alive in different places, but in our particular culture, it's much more common for people to seek magic through consumerism, by buying it, through devices, through whatever. So I wanted to bring this to mind as we studied this passage, because God has actually called us to a life where we do this, where we learn things through sweat and through blood, and through hard work. This is what God has called us to, including in the kingdom. Your faith cannot be short-circuited. Your relationship with God cannot be short-circuited. There is no devotion that you can read that replaces a relationship with God. There's no K-Love song you can listen to that will be magic for you and make things right with God. You actually have to do the hard work. We actually have to do the hard work of going into the trenches of our souls and our lives and with him and with others. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. He's writing to his spiritual son, and this is where we'll end this morning. He says, Note, <laughs> all these miracles have already been performed when he writes this. Notice that there's nowhere in here where he says strive for miracles. What does he tell Timothy to go after? He says to his spiritual son, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, what? What's he supposed to do? Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let me just say, as a minister and as a pastor, that's really hard. It's not easy to stand in front of a person who needs it and reprove or rebuke. That costs something. And you have to work hard to get to a point where the relationship can have the trust where you can do that and it not break. He's calling Timothy to a life of practice, of patience, of long obedience. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't have patience for this kind of thing. But having itching ears... Is there a more apt description of consumeristic culture? Having itching ears. Ooh, you can have whatever you want. Just buy it. <laughs> Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Church shopping <laughs> is one end of it. Or the other end of it, where leadership just says whatever they want to say to get a bigger crowd. Verse 4. And will turn away from listening to the truths and wander off into myths. Verse 5, as for you, as for you, Timothy, and as for us, Parker Ford Church, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's hard work. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Faith Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Worship team, you can come back up.
One last example as they're coming up. I was thinking about miracles and, and miracles that I, things I would say are miraculous that I've seen in my life. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that I would classify as that. Some of it supernatural, some of it not so much as what we think of as like supernatural in that extent. But I'll, I'll tell you what the greatest miracle of my life is. The greatest miracle of my life is when I look into someone's eyes that I love and they look into my eyes and there's actually a soul level connection. Like, like deep knowing where they know me and I know them and there's intimacy there. There's nothing more miraculous than that because there's nothing that the enemy attacks more than that. And so for me, I mean, an obvious example of what the miraculous is, is when I hold, I have four kids, so I've done this a couple times, but when when I hold a newborn baby, right, and I look into the eyes of that child and they look into my, they're fresh out of the womb, they look into my eyes and there's a knowing of one another and there's a mystery and you look at that and this person bears God's, it's a sacred person that bears God's image. Now, any, any of you mothers, you know that that did not come without pain. This person who was born, who bears God's image, came from difficulty and pain. And yet, when the mother holds the child, just like the scriptures say, the, the pain of childbirth is lost because the miracle of the child overwhelms as, as you look at it. This is a profound example of what it means to be a conduit of the miraculous. And so God is calling us to constantly be conduits, to flow in the miraculous, but that is on a person-to-person, flesh-to-flesh level. If God does something supernatural, awesome. If he doesn't, if there's human connection, that is supernatural, and that is miraculous, and that's actually at the heart of what he desires. Amen? Tracking with me? All right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories. I pray that this would be an encouragement to the body today. I know it was encouraging to me this week to remember these principles and to remember that um, the thing we're to seek after is you above all else and seek after you together and seek after one another. And as we seek after one another and we seek after you, you do amazing things in our midst, but it's born not out of short-circuiting the system, not out of cheat codes. It's born out of a life of long listening, quietness, patience, obedience with you. So I pray that we would be a people who walk with you in this manner. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.